Well, I had to boil the jug for Aldi decaf coffee. Uh-huh. Decaffeinated because conversations with Chris are stimulating enough. <laughs> you didn't tell me once that you got insomnia after our conversations and we had to stop recording in the evenings and then we never made that work really. <laughs> <laughs> no, now I just stay up extra late on Sunday nights. Yeah, very good. All right, all right, all right. Welcome, aficionados, fixers, and affixes to the Affix Podcast, the weekly conversation between Brian and Chris covering off all the happenings in Diablo 2, making coffee bets that will resolve one day, and, of course, talking about all the latest from the internet intelligentsia and the blogosphere, whatever. Yeah, the blogosphere of ye olde blogosphere. I like that some of the blogs I go to still have their little blog roll on the side as if it's still the year 2000. It's fantastic. Because I never really participated in the blogosphere when it was fresh and new. I was on a couple of forums back in the day, but it feels like we're getting some of the old magic back. Ah, the old days, the early aughts of the internet. People that I think of as big, big names, like Bern Hodart from the Diff, I just feel like I hear him about and a lot of the people I read, read him. And he was like so excited to get 20,000 subscribers to his Substack. And John and Hank Green are like, well, we're over the hill. This is, you know, we're well on the decline kind of thing. And their videos are getting 300,000, 700,000, 150,000. So yeah, the scale is quite different. There are different scales in different niches. I will also say, like, subscribers on Substack mean you're actually getting paid. Is that right? No, that's free subscribers. No, this is just, wow. Not, not paid subscribers. He's getting he's got 22,000 free subscribers, up 91 from last week. Well, there you go. So Good on you, Burn. I do have to sometimes remind myself what a teeny tiny corner of the internet that we inhabit. It seems so, it's big. It's so, it takes up so much of my time. There's so much of it to read. Well, to bring it back to Diablo too, like when I started watching Mr. Llama, he was around that and uh, now he has 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. So good for him. he's very proud that he can rub that in the face of one of his ex-girlfriends. Does so. he get the silver play button? Oh, I don't know what they have for that. I can't remember what the numbers are. I'm pretty sure a million is a gold play button, but I did think there was a silver one you got at some point. Maybe they got rid of those. I don't know. I don't listen to enough CGP Grey anymore. I mean, there's probably a lot of channels with 100,000 now. So... As in every week, we kick off with some reflections on last week and previous shows, whatnot. So I wanted to cover off on a couple of things on our blood donation stuff, because I said I would research some things, and I'm a man of my word. I followed through. So first up, no, you can't screen blood for prions yet. I don't know if that counts as plasma, but you can't screen blood. I, I feel like if they could screen blood for prions, they could let me donate blood, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like I could have told you that. Yeah, there was a whole bunch of articles, it seemed, from between 2016 and 2018 on a few new methods for testing for Crucifield Jacobs or mad cow disease, effectively. And it seemed to be around, you know, 85 to 90% accuracy, but no false positives. So, like, precision was all right. Okay, but good, good, good. Didn't catch everything and you don't want... Yeah. yeah you, you just don't want mad cow going around your population. Basically. I don't want mad cow blood. I'm still very worried that I have mad cow blood. I don't like that every time this gets brought up, I'm like, wait, that's me. That's me they can't screen. Yeah. So, I guess the summary is that there is progress on that front. It's not okay. just a lost cause entirely. So, so one day I'm going to lose my excuse for never giving blood. One day. One day oh. we'll suck you dry. Or possibly I'll just move to England and presumably I'm not disqualified for living in England while I'm in England. <laughs> yeah, quite possibly. What was my next note? Oh, we had a quick reference to the daycares. So oh, yeah. charging for picking up late 
at daycares. I looked everywhere for like the transcripts of podcasts and that kind of thing to try and find who said it. Like I couldn't remember explicitly if it was Tyler Cowan or Russ Roberts who said, I looked for those daycares and I actually couldn't find them. It feels like Russ Roberts because the daycares were meant to be in Israel and Russ has just moved to Israel, right? Yes, but they were also supposed to be in a specific city in Israel called Haifa. Mm. And Tyler Cowan has a blog post specifically associated with that city and saying it was actually kind of boring. So maybe it was him, but I couldn't track it down explicitly. What I could track down was Brian Kaplan being really, really skeptical of it in 2005. So there you go. Okay. I feel like I want that one for the show notes for myself, if nothing else. Yeah. I mean, the other thing was I started by Googling daycare started charging for picking up late and, you know, I'm a parent. I'm going to have a bunch of like niche recommendations tailored to me from Google. And it seems a lot of daycares do that. So surely someone's followed it up and got some actual in the market data on it. Yeah. Anyway, it is. I mean, it's a compelling story. I wouldn't be sad if it's false, but, you know, you can't believe anything ever. Yeah. Um, Looking at the background of the study, it actually seemed to have okay methods. So just the fact that it is could be fabricated is concerning, I suppose. Yeah, right. Okay. Mm. Don't know. And then the final note that I had was a little offhand statement I made wondering whether the Red Cross has a monopoly on blood donations or blood collection. And yes, yes, it does. It has a complete monopoly in Australia for collecting blood. And there was an interesting link that I sent to Chris from theconversation.com on how Australia can fix the market for plasma and save millions by actually paying people. They suggested $50 a donation for plasma. So, wow, I'd do that. There you go. When do you reckon you can do it? Once a fortnight? Once a week? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, between once a week and once a fortnight. Like, that's that's actually good money. That's money. 50 bucks a week over the course of a year. What's that? A couple of grand? That ain't nothing. So, there you go. Some people are advocating for it. Well, maybe the tide is shifting. I don't know. Is it just economists have much more of a public presence than they did 20 years ago? Could be that. Could be that the plasma markets are actually seeing shortages and they're like, we actually need to solve for this now. Yeah, maybe this wasn't a problem back when blood donations were altruistic and that was sufficient to provide our country. But the more and more uses we find of it, as I mentioned in that Planet Money podcast, the more we need to incentivize people to keep donating. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. All right, so you got any feedback for us, Chris? A couple. So I actually did some research as well. We're doing more and more research as this podcast goes on. Anyway, and I was musing on the podcast whether you can donate a lung, and it is impossible to donate a whole lung, but you can donate a lobe. And apparently your left lung has two lobes and your right lung has three lobes. And so Hmm. if you need a new lung, you need several donors at once. Uh, Right. It's a very, very unusual operation. So they like Frankenstein a whole lung out of many donations. That was my understanding, that three people would be going in for like simultaneous surgery. So you could take half a lung from two of those people and glue that lung into the third person. That is so interesting. There's not many places that do it. Usually lung donations are from deceased people. I can guess motorcycle riders is how the joke goes, right? Yep. But uh, that you can do live transplants. It's very, very rare. But you and for you know partly for that reason that I guess you would need two compatible donors because I know compatibility in um, yes. tissue donation can be a pretty big deal. Wow, there you go. How how fascinating. Yeah, amazing. I got a little bit of feedback on the we talked about the upside decay article. We didn't yep. talk about it in depth, but it was quite critical of China burning their bridges, burning their allies, and the worry was that China's growth would plateau because they wouldn't get any of these upside fortuitous events because they've burned all the goodwill and a lot of these small chance outcomes need help from external things 
And their opinion was basically China knows what they're doing and they feel like they have reached the level of power where they don't need allies as much anymore and they can really start asserting themselves. Just an opinion, but a plausible one from what I read around the blogosphere that as China nears on to be the biggest country in the world by GDP, as well as population, they are much more willing. They make their own luck. They make their own luck, absolutely. And plausibly, China is one of the few countries that could really do that with the scale and size that it is. Yeah, just the breadth, I suppose. Like, hey, it's a big country, but there is... There's a world in China. Yeah, it's a civilization. Wasn't there some article about civilization states? I haven't read that one. I would love to see it. Oh. Chuck it in the show notes and I will have to check it out myself. I better dig it up. But yeah, the idea that you know China is a, like we talk about Western civilization. China is a civilization. It's not just a country. It's a whole, yeah, it's a whole civilization in, contained in, amongst itself. Yeah, I mean, I know a marginal amount of Chinese history, maybe slightly more than the everyman, but it's a big place and there's a lot of depth to China. So there's a lot, yeah. I'll be yep. interested to see it. How many people create a lot of history, particularly over that long being that long a consistent state with that many people for, I don't know, forever? Possibly forever. <laughs> yeah, well, forever is a pretty long time. <laughs> I don't really know how far back history goes. 6,000 years? How long does history go back? I guess technically, what was it? Herodotus was around... Well, yeah, it'd only be about two and a half thousand years, I reckon, would be history. Two and a half thousand? We know. What about, um, you know, Egyptians? Yeah, yeah, I guess we've it got that. It depends what you but... count as history. Like, if you've yeah, yeah. got written word, I think they count that as history prior to the written word as prehistory. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. I guess I'm just purely counting it based on Herodotus, who was the first one who wrote the uh, histories. Yeah, Herodotus being the first historian. Yeah, who told yeah sort of biographical tales of people rather than just this king commands you to do this yes. he's pretty great or but yes this person traded four goats for that person's six cows or whatever which was a lot of the egyptian <laughs> stuff i think <laughs> it sure is yep so yeah that's an interesting point history it's complicated history it's complicated while i'm on it i'm reading the anthropocene reviewed which is a book that i hope to do a review of in this podcast but i'm not yet finished but i did enjoy a quip in it which is like we always picture cavemen as like brutes with clubs and just you know short violent brutish lives smacking each other over the head dragons and the crane but literally the only thing we know about them is that they were artists because there's all the cave paintings is basically all that has survived from them that's a great quote and once again i have another list of feedback that i want to work into the main topic cool all right what's our main topic chris i mean you're doing it we're blowing up atlanta <laughs> was the conclusion of this article i think <laughs> Great. Maybe Dallas, something like that. We're going to pick a mid-sized American city to just raise. <laughs> All right. We've given away the ending just to start. So, you know, it's... Tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them. Tell them what you told them. It's how you give an engaging presentation, Brian. <laughs> so, um, listeners, get ready because we're about to take a winding path. But ultimately, we're going to tell you to blow up it later. Cool. So, this week's first topic is a article I read oh, a couple of weeks ago by Alvaro de Manard at Fantastic Anachronism, covering returns to scale in broken windows. So the first thing that caught my attention to this was I thought it would actually probably tie into one of our little like feedback to ourselves sections because we referenced the broken window fallacy a few weeks ago in the podcast, talking about, you know, breaking a window may seem to generate economic activity, like you can increase growth by breaking a bunch of windows and then you have to pay the glazier to fix your windows and that kind of thing. Yep. But it's actually just a fallacy because you've got the opportunity cost of what you would have spent on things otherwise instead of fixing the window. So you could have had better growth overall. And this article is covering off 
a good amount of research into examples where the broken window fallacy actually was net positive by essentially having sufficient destruction in a region, it broke a level of path dependence in these affected cities, affected countries even, and allowed them to rebuild back better. So imagine you had a broken window and instead of just replacing it with the same cheapo pane of glass, you installed double glazed windows or whatever and therefore you actually got better building efficiency out of it. That kind of basic principle, but writ large. So by breaking the windows, you actually built the world back better. And I just found it fascinating. Yeah, it absolutely is. It goes through a number of examples. Starts in Boston where a chunk of the city got burnt down. And there's a beautiful old map of the chunk that got burnt down. And the, the population density and the wage density, I think, in those areas is significantly higher than the rest of Boston after being burnt down. Yeah. And I will just second that. Like, this map is fantastic. I love those kind of old-timey maps. And it's got the, like, nice aging around the edges. It, does, it looks like it looks straight out of Dungeons & Dragons, to be perfectly honest, <laughs> I think. But, yeah, so the fire itself basically got rid of a whole bunch of low-quality buildings that were obviously pretty flammable and allowed people to come back in and just redevelop all the land from scratch, getting rid of the old city layouts and allowing it to have a better central business district and all that kind of stuff. And effectively, the quote here is that the fire is estimated to have increased land values by $5.3 million in the burned area and $9 million in the unburned area. So not only was the direct impacts of rebuilding the burned area positive, it actually had flow-on effects and second-order effects in the rest of the unburned established areas in Boston just by increasing productivity and increasing the like effectiveness of that formerly cruddy, burnt-down neighbourhood, presumably. Yeah. I don't, well, if you look actually down, the raised residential density was already the most dense part of the city, but apparently it could have been even, even denser. Yeah. So they like massively stepped up building density there. I guess they had multi-story households, less yards, that kind of thing, and got more people in, got more of those serendipitous interactions and crammed in more business, I suppose. I'm not sure how that all works, to be honest. But Yeah, and I guess the theory is no one thought that it was worth to demolish all those buildings at once to build all this economic growth, even though plausibly you could have picked it. It takes the elimination, just like some of my friends are looking at replacing their windows with double glazing, and it's so expensive to replace a perfectly good window with double glazing that it's really hard to make that stack up. So most people don't do it, or they'll pick a few of their biggest windows and only do those in order to add a bit of insulation. But once there's a rock thrown through the window, it's like I'm up for 500 bucks to replace the window or $1,000 for the double glazing. Yeah, I'm going to go the double glazing for sure. Yeah, exactly, because the incremental cost there is actually only $500, right? Yeah, so, but, but what this article would argue, basically, is that the $1,000 was always worth it. You're just a tight ass yeah. and you should have been doing it in the first place. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess it's like a bit of the... That's one of the things that the sunk cost fallacy always gets kind of mischaracterized as, right? So it's like, it would be worth my time getting this $3,000 laptop and that would be better no matter what. But, you know, I've already got this $3,000 laptop from two years ago. Maybe I should keep working on that. Well, if you see GP Grey, just get the new thing one year later. Yeah, because of sunk cost fallacy, that doesn't matter. The old thing, it's already sunk cost. I'm never getting that money back. I may as well just spend another $3,000. Yeah. I'm not sure he's fully embraced the sunk cost fallacy uh, the way that I have. Yeah, I think uh, there's a danger in learning the sunk cost fallacy that you may make 
incorrect decisions that if you didn't know about the sunk cost fallacy, you would make correctly. So you would think, well, the marginal product I'll get out of my existing computer that I'm paying zero dollars for is still worth more than the marginal return on the value I'd invest in this new $3,000 laptop. Yep. Yep. But anyway, that's sunk cost fallacy. Tricky mathematics. Put that to the side. We're going back. We're doing broken windows fallacy. And I think I agree with you. I think that... Of course, I agree with you. This is the Affix podcast where I say yes to Chris every single time. <laughs> I just like back up your claim that if you took it piecemeal and these whole areas weren't raised effectively, weren't completely burned down wholemeal, then you would be trying to potentially upgrade the living facilities piecemeal across the neighborhood. So you might get individual real estate developers buying individual blocks of land out and making them slightly better but you wouldn't get the same net benefit all in one go of a complete redesign from scratch. Yes, it does make that point that it is too difficult or expensive to coordinate to destroy an entire city or a section of a city at once, like a fire does. No single land developer can buy one-sixth of Boston in order to reshape it, even if the maths would nominally work. You just couldn't get the agreement to do it because someone's going to want to keep their house. Probably many people are going to work on to keep their house. People are quite attached to their houses. Ask Robert Moses. Yeah. <laughs> no, and like that kind of reminds me of a thing. It's the opposite of the tragedy of the commons. I actually think it's called the tragedy of the anti-commons, where the common example is just Google nail houses in China. And it's effectively like where the Chinese state has come into wholesale redevelop an area, but there's just like one house that has completely refused to move whatsoever. And like the people are staying in there and it just is this like, it's a heck of an image. You should Google it up. Have you seen it before? I don't recall it. It does remind me of a place that I saw in St Kilda where there was clearly a little house that wouldn't sell kind of thing. And they had built a skyscraper that sort of went up and then over this house wider. <laughs> so they basically built so their house could stay in the shadow of a skyscraper. It was, yeah. It was crazy. Maybe that was heritage or something. I don't know. But yeah, I remember that one. That I'm just getting I'm just getting a bunch of places to do my nails. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Look at them. They're like in the middle of highways and stuff. Yeah. It's wacky. Wow. Yeah, they're wacky. Yeah, I'll put a couple of these in the show notes for sure. These are very cool. Man, I thought the Chinese state was all-powerful. Why aren't they just demolishing it? It's actually been like 10 years since I read anything on tragedy of the anti-commons and those nail houses, so I can't tell you off the top of my head, sorry. Well, topic for next week. So the article goes on and like has a bunch of other examples. So it starts off with Boston, also looks at a massive fire in San Francisco, famous one, looks at Hurricane Katrina, looks at the impacts of World War II even, and some of the charts there for the World War II, like the extrapolation of France GDP per capita. Yeah, it's impressive. But rather than just running through every individual thing here, I'll just first get to what I was thinking about in reading all these examples and going, yeah, that's a great thing, like actually unlocking value by massively redeveloping, blah, blah, blah. And I guess the thing that stands out to me is the people who reap the benefits of that kind of shock aren't the same people who bear the cost of the shock. Well, that's true. I mean, this is often the case in economic rationality, right? If you're looking at purely decreasing GDP, then you can often be robbing Peter to pay Paul. Even if you're paying Paul more money and you're like, yeah, look, we made the GDP money number bigger, you can still be creating a lot of harm in that process. Yeah, exactly. Like a lot of these things are potentially pre insurance even well i guess insurance has been around for thousands of years but pre you know insurance being as common as it is today thousands of years i don't believe you is that true i'm gonna posit that insurance existed in a form in rome i disagree i'm pretty sure lloyds of london invented it all right cool 
I vaguely believe you because that sounds familiar now, but I'm still going to think that some form of insurance existed. All right, thank goodness, because I haven't thought of a copy bet this week. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Cool. So even like even assuming that people had insurance, your house gets burnt down. You get paid replacement value for your house at the time it was burnt down. You're not getting the extra, you know, the two x valuation that has been unlocked by developers coming in and reworking the market wholesale now. No, and I mean, like plausibly, part of the reason the developers can come in now rather than destroying all the houses before is it's like, well, it's just burnt rubble now, so you're going to give me a good price, right? It's half what it used to be worth because it's a bunch of burnt rubble. Here's the yeah. half what it would have been worth six weeks ago when your house was on it. Yep. And there you go. That is one thing from ancient Rome. That is how Crassus made his money. So, yeah. Possibly the richest man who's ever lived, I think. Yeah, him or um, what's his name? The guy from Africa who went to go on the Hajj and just massively distributed gold everywhere and everywhere was kind of like <laughs> had economic collapses after it because they couldn't deal with the inflation. Really? No, I feel like I don't know that story as well. I think it's Masa Musa. No, oh, that name maybe rings a bell. Mansa Musa, there we go. Anyway, we're making lots of uh, historic references in this. This is interesting. This is Brian's kind of podcast. you got to prove that you're smarter than Tim Ferriss. <laughs> but yeah, I think like that was the main thought that occurred to me. So yeah, net beneficial for mankind overall. Well, at least the cities that they're living in overall, but not necessarily... Like the people who still go through it, it's still a complete tragedy. Yeah, I mean, if I had to choose to get whether to get my house burnt down, I'm still going to probably choose no, even after reading this extremely well-reasoned article that probably suggests that maybe a thing would happen. <laughs> well put. <laughs> I'm very dismissive of the things I read. I read so many of them and I believe so few. Oh, what a transformation from Chris who just believes whatever he just read. I mean, I actually don't know which way I go. Both, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The the labour income in New Orleans after the Hurricane Katrina, I thought, was an interesting counterpoint to that in that you can see their wages. I don't know what zero represents the year before Katrina came in. And it looks like wages had actually been declining in New Orleans, if I'm reading this graph right. And then they get completely annihilated by Hurricane Katrina and everyone learns minus four dollars percent thousand dollars million dollars i'm not really sure what the graph represents it's labor income thousands and it must be the change year on year i'm guessing change year on year so they will lose considerable income in the immediate aftermath the year or two after hurricane katrina but then it jumps and jumps way above where they were pre-hurricane katrina like thousand oh well as far above as below and the below only lasts two years and the above presumably lasts a lot of the rest of their lives so it does seem and I feel like I've mentioned that this is partly myself, that you get in these locked on paths that like here I am, I'm a dishwasher or I'm a insurance salesman or I'm a corporate finance director and I'm like, oh, I guess this is all I'm ever going to amount to. So I'll just stay on my path being a corporate finance director and I'll never really grow. And then when you get your house destroyed and you have to move in with relatives in another city or you have to, you know, you make new, your job has been burnt down. So you just have to find whatever job and you're like, oh, well, I always wanted to be a you know, director of procurement or something, you know, something exciting, not just a director of corporate finance. And you find this new path having been, you know, fairly violently dislodged from your own path. And that seems to be a good thing. Yes, yes. I think that actually nicely ties to the off-quoted study from Steve Levitt that they did through Freakonomics where they asked people to, you know, flip a coin as to whether they would make a change or not. And basically the general advice that they could give out of that is if you are presented with a dichotomy where it seems like you have to make a choice between two options, 
just choose the option that seems like the most drastic one. Yeah, make the big change. It's usually the right thing to do. You'll be happier in a few years. Like you overestimate the costs of the big change and you underestimate the benefits. The costs may be drastic and moving house is a pain in the ass and very expensive and moving to a new city is stressful and you need to get a whole lot of new skills and meet new friends and whatever, but the benefits will be reaped for years to come and the, the downside will only be a couple of months really. Yeah. I can't remember where I read it. Maybe it was Applied Divinity Studies had a kind of summary of philosophical musings on there and he had just in there a point that humans are more resilient than we think we are yeah and that's just a good point to keep in mind as well yes that is important absolutely so the article also nicely has and this is one thing that i love about reading rationalist blogs it like has a really good thorough argument against itself at the end being like wait this is all completely insane yes absolutely (laughs) yep Like covering off, okay, well, it's actually quite likely that this is just completely, you know, publication bias. Like economists just really like publishing contrarian stuff. That is how you get into the best journals. Publishing something that everyone knows is unlikely to get you into the best journals. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like one might argue that destruction bad doesn't get you published. While destruction (laughs) good is exactly the type of contrarian bleep beloved by academic economists the world over. Please tell me you're actually going to bleep over your own bleep. I want to hear a bleep (laughs) over the bleep. I want you to know, listeners, when he bleeps that bleep, he actually just said bleep, but he's going to bleep it out anyway. Classic. Yeah. And I sort of wanted to, like, this talks about physical capital, which is way more, way more interesting to me. But it sort of ties to an idea that's out there that eventually the old institutions get a bit crusty and need to be blown away through revolution. Or like, you know, possibly the reason that America has been so successful is that it's new and it didn't have all of the kings and the lords and the nobles and the churches and whatever of the old world. They got to start again. And maybe the institution should be blown away as well as the physical capital. And that is a way to do growth. And we had a discussion about this on the government's response and the founders versus inheritance sort of thing. And this is where the listener feedback that I want to come into is that even just being an inheritor, you have a lot of expectations on you, perhaps, that it's not just the rules that are physically written in. It's the weight of tradition and the expectations that are following you around when you're the next king of England or the next prime minister of Australia or the next president of the United States or whatever, it's not just the written rule of law that is holding you down. It is all of that weight of tradition and heritage that is constrains your behavior, even if not literally, then in your own mind. Yeah, this is like taking it to another level, but it's something that Matt Levine wrote that like rings so true to me on that front, which is if you're inheriting a role, so much of what you do, you feel like you're just pretending, what would I imagine someone who's doing this role is doing? And Matt and Levine like wrote about it in context of people working in investment banking. And they're like, I don't know, I guess we'd just be hyper competitive investment banky dudes. <laughs> so we just play the game without actually meaning it. This isn't who we are, but this is just, we're playing a role. And yep. that feels so true to me in so many circumstances. It's just like, okay, I'm in this project meeting. What do I imagine a project manager would do? I've never actually done project management. Yeah. Okay, I'll do this thing. And everyone's like, yeah, that's great. Yeah, well done. That's some good, that's some good project managing. You really took charge there. This <laughs> is like, what? So, yeah, if you're inheriting something, you're also inheriting your own conception of what that thing would do and just filling that role so often. Yeah. I mean, this is a, a, a total tangent. You'll be surprised to hear, Lerinus, but I remember the... Um, the article Scott wrote on Erdogan, the president of Turkey. Yep. And he was not allowed to run as the Muslim candidate, even though that's sort of what he was. So he ran as a moderate 
liberal capitalist, basically, and he got into power on that basis and he's like, oh, God, what do I do? Uh, but so I guess I'll open up the markets and have a free economy kind of thing. And then, like, it just kept working. I was like, oh, why, why is this happening? <laughs> I, <don't, laughs> I guess. And then Turkey went through its, like, its most sustained run of economic growth for the past 50 years. So just, yeah, by imitating his idea of what a liberal political candidate would do in the economic sphere, he pulled it off and delivered. He pulled it off, yep, he delivered it. And, you know, this is all conjecture, maybe he really is a canny politician and that's exactly what he meant all along, but I don't know, the way that Scott has written it is very funny to me. Yes, yes. And also, by the way, this is no, in no way endorsement of Erdogan and his government in Turkey. But Certainly not currently, no, no, no. Possibly he did some good for a while. What he's doing currently is not good. And then to loop back, uh, I also found it like this was, this is the second week in a row that we get to reference Leon Trotsky's idea of permanent revolution, right? Sure. And just like burning out the dead wood. Which ordinarily I hate, unless people <laughs> who are in my tribe say it's a good idea and they're like, yep, that's what we need to do. Yeah. And I kind of found the passage here about like the basic aversion to destruction goes unquestioned. If all you have is a plan to burn down the current system, you do not actually have a plan at all. And yeah, okay, you actually have to have a plan for what you're going to build after before you do anything destructive. And just aiming for destruction in and of itself, I feel like is uh, rolling the dice. And as we covered earlier, the people who benefit from that destruction are not necessarily the people who are feeling the pain either. Chaos is a ladder. Game of Thrones isn't cool anymore. <laughs> oh, sorry. It lost all cultural repetence. That's not really what the article's arguing, though, because I don't think anyone was like, we need to plan for when Boston gets burnt down. No, I think it was just like, here's a whole bunch of examples as to when, even without a plan, you can just look on the bright side. Right. Well, I feel like I need to read the last paragraph of this article just to, to wrap this up. Good. <laughs> Will it work? We don't know. If we don't try, let's start with a modest pilot program and tear down just one city, someplace like Atlanta or Dallas. See what happens. Doesn't even have to be the whole metropolitan area, just a few key neighborhoods. You said you wanted progress studies, didn't you? <laughs> you wanted progress studies. This could be progress. This could be it. You know, without a double blind trial, how would you ever know if this works? <laughs> yeah, we won't even know which city we destroyed. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. We'll, we'll put like a bunch of bombs in a bunch of different cities and not tell anyone which is the live one. <sighs> so anyway, really interesting article, worth your time reading. I probably, yeah, globbed onto its own criticisms of itself. But yeah, I think there's interesting things. And I think it does give an interesting way of looking at the world to be like, this destruction can unlock net benefits and sometimes doing the most outlandish thing in your own personal life can deliver excessive benefits beyond what you expect. It's time to thank our Patreons. Thanks, Patreons. And done. <laughs> Don't forget, the live show. You've probably already missed it. Like, it is after this episode will go live, but if you're not listening to it as it's on, you've already missed it. It'll be up for you next week, though. So don't fear. It's not an only live show. It will be in part of the feed. But if you're listening to this eagerly as soon as it comes out, then don't forget that at tonight, June 13th at 8pm Australian Eastern Standard Time, we are recording a live show on Twitch. Please come with your questions, expect some banter, expect a different type of show than what we normally do. Brian might get bored and start playing Diablo halfway through it. You never know what's going to happen. It's going to be great. I mean, we are interrupting the new ladder. So, you know, this is how much I prioritise you, dear listeners. But yes, thank you, patrons. We appreciate what you do every week. And thank you, listeners. We appreciate you reaching out to us. You can always contact us at affixpodcast at gmail.com or podcastaffix at gmail.com. I genuinely don't even know which one I have and Chris has. Sometimes we forward it back to each other, though. You will always contact both of us, but you never know which one gets to filter and edit your email before forwarding it to <laughs> 
Fair enough. Yeah, we appreciate hearing from you and thanks for the support. Thanks, everyone. See ya returns to scale. Actually, I want to subscribe to you. Can I subscribe to you? Should I subscribe no, to you? I should have done that. <laughs> All right, you can tell me if the next one's good and then I might subscribe myself. It seems almost too interesting. Oh, God. Oh, God. We're cancelling the podcast. I'm just going to read this from now on. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. God. Like, I'm actually worried about subscribing to it because I have that much stuff to read every oh, week. I know. I have so much to read. I'm getting so behind on my substacks. <laughs> oh, like, just waking up every day. Like, when Matt Levine came through on Saturday and he's like, I know I said I was going to be off tomorrow, but I wrote <laughs> something anyway. Like, I'm like, God oh, damn it, Matt oh, Levine. Matt, why? <laughs> I mean, worth reading, but still. <laughs> still a good article, but oh my God, there's so much to read. Yeah. I'm going to have to ditch certainly Glenn Greenwald. He's down the bottom. Freddie DeBoer's process will be posting too much to be in constant rotation. Noah Smith. I don't know. None of my subs. None of my. The no opinion. Um, have you signed up for. No, of course you haven't because you've got too much to read already. Jolly Swagman linked no opinion no. on the Great Stagnation. I forgot to mention it in the follow up. Oh, yeah. He's been doing his, his argument against the Great Stagnation. Yeah. And the argument against the Great Stagnation was totally, totally. Worth a read. Yes, it was worth a read. Yeah. No opinion probably on the top of the list. I think Mount Iglesias is actually right at the top. I actually find him quite engaging most of the time. Oh, he does cool. get too much into the minutia of specifically American electoral politics sometimes, but... Maybe that's just for the paywall. Yeah. So most of that, I reckon, is hidden behind the paywall and it's more general stuff is what I read. And I find him quite good. No, and Matt are probably the two top, but Matt edges out, I think. Cool. And that concludes Brian and Chris complain about reading too much i'm not even sure this was meant to make it in the podcast but whatever okay <laughs> i still have to work through the great conversation and all that stuff on top of it thank god i'm done with kant i can't believe you finished kant like you linked me one half of a paragraph of kant and i'm like man this is some dense stuff how long was that book it was not that long like genuinely if i had the mental ability to deal with it i probably could have pushed through it in two days okay but I would read two pages and just be falling asleep. I could barely read that paragraph in two days. That was so dense. It was so complicated and, man, yeah. Yeah, my Kindle kept being like, oh, there's 10 minutes left in this chapter. Okay, well, that's going to take me an hour. Oof, yep. <laughs> yep, I admire you for reading the great conversations, but I do not think it is for me. Yep. Oh, it was actually totally worth reading in the end. It was just, it was a slog. I don't know, maybe if there's... A short course you could do. That would probably be better. Oh, oh. oh my God. We're getting live listener feedback. I don't know whether I can... Yeah, this is on. Here it is. He found it. The daycare center imposed a fine on everyone coming out late. Yes, Tyler Cohen argues that this study probably does not exist. Here's his conversation with Slajov Zizak, which I'm sure I listened to and is probably... I did, yeah, too. yeah. Zizak, a Jewish friend in Israel told me this. They had a kindergarten here and then Cohen cuts him off. That story is apocryphal. People have tried to follow up that kindergarten in Israel story. It's probably not true. Zizak, really? Cohen, yes. Zizak, are we talking about when they made them pay even less? Yes. We're not sure this is true. I've looked into it. Really? It's possibly true. It cannot be confirmed. Wow. Oh, but this is my greatest bugbear with Cohen. A study exists. The paper is called A Fine is a Price by Yuri Nisi and Aldo Roshini. Yeah, I found that exact paper. So that was why I was like, they say they've got a control group. They've got six daycares who did it and they've got six who didn't. And they like the methodology seemed solid. So that was why I'm a bit ambiguous on this. Well, Cohen is not a believer, but it does seem that there's a published paper that he probably should be a believer. Well, yeah. And Brian Kaplan was not a believer, even referencing 
that paper. So that was why I made the reference earlier, that maybe it was just fabricated data behind it. Hmm. Man, mystery deepens. I feel like there's going to be more listener feedback and Chris and Brian feedback to ourselves out of this. I wonder where that listener feedback will come from. Hmm. Amazing timing. Right. We want to talk about carbon credits because I read a lot and in theory, I hope that it helps me learn about the world and act better in the world and be a greater seeker of truth or whatever. But, you know, I think I've been pretty clear multiple times that I really just do it for entertaining because I find the brain candy just amazing and I just enjoy reading these things. But an article by Scott Alexander on actually the ethical difference between eating chicken and beef was talking about the ethical climate change impacts of eating beef versus the ethical impacts of killing a lot of chickens because you have to kill a lot of chickens or per kilo of meat you kill more chickens than cows because a cow provides a lot of meat and chickens don't provide that much meat also cows particularly australian cows have pretty okay lives they wander around fields eating grass but chickens live in battery cages and can't move and are in a constant state of fear and panic and can barely move and then possibly would not choose to be alive if they had that choice so ethically the weight is towards eating meat but when you eat meat it, and it's a huge amount of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, so you're contributing far more directly to climate change. And cows are famously much more impactful on global warming outputs, effectively, predominantly through methane, than chickens. Yes. So, sort of, if you want to eat, pick a type of meat for your ethical dilemma, you have to work out which kind of ethical dilemma you're more concerned about, the harming of conscious lives or the harming of our planet through climate change. Harming of animal lives, generally. Yeah. Harming of animal lives, generally. Sure which I'm pretty low on, better or for worse. I don't know whether I'm proud of that fact, but I like yep. my choice has been pretty easy. I'm like, I should eat more chickens then because I do care about climate change and I don't care that much about chicken suffering, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, I would be similar to you. I mean, I have a lot more background being close to animals and maybe we'll get into that on another podcast where we discuss, like we've got it somewhere in the show notes to discuss meat replacement stuff. So mm. we'll get to it at some point, listeners. I'm keen on that. But this is the... Carbon offset topic. This is the carbon so. offset topic. So this is a very roundabout way of saying, like the market has priced offsetting carbon at this. There is actually a market price estimate for the saving of a chicken through sort of awareness campaigns and pressuring large supermarket chains to buy more ethically sourced chicken or whatever, these kind of things. And then you could eat cows and just offset the carbon for cheaper than you can eat chickens. Or maybe it's the other way around. I don't really remember. But the point he made is there's no point in sort of doing all of this intellectual dense of like oh i could offset a ton of carbon dioxide or i could offset three chicken lives for four dollars or a ton of carbon dioxide for five dollars therefore i'm going to choose the four dollar option so chicken's a better thing if you don't actually do it um and so for the first provable time in my life reading that article made me go and buy enough carbon offsets to offset my life so i did some calculations on how much carbon i emit personally and this is only through transport personal transport and electricity consumption it seems to be and it's about 18.2 tons a year i got to and flights Yep. Didn't seem to do a good job of the embodied carbon in the laptop that I'm recording this in or the couch that I buy or any of that sort of stuff. I'm not sure who's responsible for that carbon. I would still argue that I am, but I don't know. Perhaps the assumption is that the company who emitted the carbon in producing those and gets the profits for those should be responsible for that carbon. Difficult. Maybe it's just rolled into your general energy usage profile as well as being like an Australian citizen. Like it assumes that um, I don't know how that all worked. You did the thing. Yeah, no, I don't feel like there was that section of like, you just live in Australia, therefore your lifestyle will contribute X. It was, what is your power bill? How many flights do you take? How far do you drive? How fuel efficient is your car? It did actually have how much meat did you eat? Uh, So I do think that my carbon for that is offset. But general consumerist stuff is not. But general consumer goods, my TV, my furniture, my house, like 
the concrete in my house, you know, concrete is meant to be one of those really tricky to beat carbon emitting things because we really, really need concrete to build everything and we don't know how to do it in a carbon-free way. Yep. So, yeah, you went and bought a bunch of carbon credits. So, I went and bought a bunch of carbon credits. So, I'm, in fact, subscribed to buy carbon credits every month from now on until I cancel, basically. So, I am offsetting 25 tons of carbon. My calculations put it me at 18. I think the ACD government already pays for me to have carbon-free electricity. So, arguably, that puts me down to 12 or 13 that I'm responsible for directly. So, more than offsetting my carbon through the planting of trees in Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, got it. Sorry, I'm just Googling Australia per capita CO2 emissions. And it says Australia per capita is 15.54 metric tons in 2016. So overall emissions in Australia. So that calculation that you've done for yourself is higher than the average in Australia, even including the rest of like manufacturing Manufacturing. and all that kind of stuff that's not Mm. going to you. So that seems... I find that deeply surprising because I ride my bike everywhere and I have a fairly electricity efficient house. Hmm. Anyway, so that's all to say, in the messages that we exchanged on this, you actually found that surprisingly affordable. I found that very affordable. So it's 30 bucks, or it's a dollar a day is what they're charging for. So I've gone through a company called Greenfleet who have been doing this for a long time, and they've just decided some companies in America will let you choose how many tons you want to offset to exactly calculate your life. Greenfleet is just like, for a dollar a day, we're going to offset, I think it's 1.9 tons of carbon per month, which is about 23 tons a year, which I'm guessing is what they think the average Australian does. I don't know why they do it. <laughs> yep. And that's 30 bucks a month, which really, I don't know, it gave me a new perspective on climate change. And, I, you know, we've got our priors on the table before that I'm fairly affluent and, I, you know, $30 a month is not a lot of money to me. But, you know, it's not a huge amount of money to most Australians, I would say. 30 bucks a month is not nothing. It is phone bill or it's coffees for a month. Maybe not your coffees for a month, but the coffees for a bit. It's not that much money. And this threw into stark relief. If I can actually offset my carbon for 30 bucks a month, climate change is just so much more sad and terrible. We don't all have to live terrible lives and sacrifice ourselves down to, you know, only walking places and only eating vegetables grown in our own backyards and completely give up on modernity. Otherwise, we're going to set the entire planet on fire for sure. It's like, it's 300 bucks a year. If everyone would just pitch in, we could fix this problem. Yeah, that's... That's an interesting way of putting it, because what I reacted to that cost with was maybe climate change isn't as big a problem as I've built up in my head if it's only that much. So, yeah, yeah, I'm totally behind you. I'm like lining up to pay for a bunch of carbon credits myself, having looked at this for everyone who may be questioning it or like just to clarify a couple of statements that Chris made there. Looking on the Greenfleet website, you can actually pay for specific offsets. So for absolute tons or if you only did, you wanted to offsite a flight or that kind of thing. Yes, you can buy once off. You then just have to manually do it if you're offsetting one off sort of thing. I like the idea of set and forget. Comes out on payday. Don't think about it. It's done. Totally. So there's that option. I also looked at the background of what they're doing. Mostly it's planting trees in Australia in specific carve out greenfield. Yeah like paddocks and stuff like that from farms. I had a look at a few of the farms. There's a few questions there, but it seems it seems marginally less dodgy from my quick 30 minutes of research compared to some of the writings that I've seen. So Chris also, in my conversations with him about this, referenced a recent episode of Planet Money about emissions. Yep. The episode is called Emission Impossible, kind of covering off where there's a few sketchy things going on in the 
emissions offsetting markets, particularly in the developing world where they're saying we'll carve out this particular area of forest and we promise we won't cut it down. Yeah. But they might, might make that same promise to lots and lots of people. Or it was a bit of forest that was never going to get cut down because it's in the middle of nowhere and it's hard to get the logging trucks to. Or by saving this bit of forest, the loggers just move over to the next partnership forest and the number of net trees cut down are exactly the same. It's yeah. very difficult when saving trees, I think, yeah, when saving trees for, that were slated for destruction, it's a much harder argument to make. But I guess the 100%. thrust of the argument was that Microsoft wanted to go carbon negative the same way that I do. And, you know, perhaps it speaks to the depth of the market. And perhaps this is the other perspective on climate change isn't it, that I'm only realizing as a result of having this conversation with you, which is why I have these conversations. And that for a charity where people are volunteering, donating 30 bucks a month, it's pretty easy to get a marginal tree to plant for $30 a month to offset my carbon emissions. But when Microsoft's like, cool, we've got $500 million to spend to make our entire operations globally carbon efficient. Where can we spend $500 million? It's not as easy to get the marginal ton of carbon for the same price that I'm paying for at the very edges of the market. Yeah. And this was a thing that I've been thinking about over the last week about it. So in the first article that you referenced there from Scott Alexander, he kind of puts a rough price on carbon at about 10 US dollars per ton. Yep. But I also remember back when we were having discussions in Australia about the carbon tax, they were like, well, $30 a ton is too low. What you should actually expect is 100. And I guess where I think about it is like when you get to scale in a system, what's the marginal cost of an additional ton going to be? And at this stage, where it is quite cheap for you or I to go to a website and pay for a seemingly okay service in Australia to offset our carbon. Long running service. My dad has been with this service offsetting his own carbon for 15 plus years, he told me. I never realized it doesn't surprise me in any way because he's quite a greenie and that's an excellent thing. But yeah, when I'm like, Greenfleet, have you ever heard of them? He's like, yes, obviously. (laughs) There you go. So prima facie, I'm just saying like I haven't done my full research, but prima facie, they seem okay. Yeah, uh, and in case I haven't made this clear on the podcast before, my dad is an environmental economist and you know has worked professionally in this field for 30 years. So I feel like he yep. probably knows what he's talking about. And if he's willing <laughs> to give these guys a shot, I definitely am. Yep, that's a good reference. Anyway, so where we can effectively do that at a quite a low cost right now in the current market of 10 to $15 a ton, I guess it probably works out, something like that. Yep. If everyone did it, it would be increasingly hard to find that reliable land that you could really trust is getting more trees planted on it that could actually have reasonable yields for the trees and they wouldn't all just die. I mean, one thing that I reflect on back in my early days of being an accountant was it was just at the phase-out point of a forestry scheme that the Australian government brought in as like a massive tax incentive that you'd get huge tax offsets for planting a whole bunch of forests effectively. And a whole bunch of fields in Western Australia and I think Southern Australia that were completely marginal got all these tax credits for planting trees that basically just died the next year as saplings. Oh, that's not good. So, like, that's kind of where you get to the risk factor of when this market gets to scale, it's going to be more and more expensive for that additional cost of offsetting your carbon outputs. So, what I'm saying is, everyone, get in right now. Yeah, you. I mean... Usually the returns to scale is that things get cheaper and cheaper. And is it just, it's just because it's hard to audit. The level of audit required means there's just going to be shadier and shadier operatives in the market. And But I mean, does that dominate the market or does that actually just make it easier for journalists to find a shady operator and make a big story out of it because it, it's going to get a lot of clicks? I think that's a very reasonable output. I mean, we just reflected on publication bias in the last topic, so I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I definitely think there's publication bias in the media as well, right? There. 
it's different to what's going to get published in an academic journal, but they're incentivized to publish unorthodox stories. And the story of like carbon credits are pretty great and they work. It's a pretty boring story. They've been around for 20 years. Carbon credits are evil and like maybe they're all fake and Microsoft should feel very bad about themselves. That's a much more journalistic story. Yeah, maybe these vaccines won't protect you from the new variants that are going around. Oh, wait, old variants. Good old variants. But yeah, no, that's actually a great point. Uh, Maybe that's a good amount of bias that's coming into my own vision on that front. Hmm. I just feel like returns to scale aren't really going to be there in planting trees. If it's actually like going in terms of other negative emissions technology, if it's like olivine, which is uh, a crushed up kind of, I think it's like some kind of limestone powder that they're spreading around. Worth going back to our previous reference to an article that was shared by Gwern that had the rundown of all the negative emissions technologies and their cost per ton, that kind of thing. We'll put it again in this show's show notes. Maybe they've got room for, you know, returns to scale. But planting trees, it's like a lot of, we figured out a lot of agriculture. And I suspect a lot of these green fleet trees are actually just being planted by hippies who aren't getting paid anything anyway. I wonder. I mean, yeah, quite possibly. Oh, did Gwen Link have anything to do with, oh, just the tangent, sorry. Isn't there this idea that we can feed cows seaweed and they'll stop burping out so much methane and they'll be good for the environment again? I can't remember who it was in Gwern's link. It was somewhere else that I read recently that that actually makes cows sick in the long run and you just can't do it super sustainably. Oh, that's a shame. Maybe it was actually another episode of Planet Money where they talked about green sheep. There were like sheep that were cast out. Oh, no, I think it was um, 99% invisible. There were sheep that were forced to live on the edge of an island, like they were walled out of their island and they had to basically live off eating seaweed. And that yeah. was kind of where they first came up with that finding, oh. but they, it wasn't really that scalable or they got sick or something if they didn't have it right. I don't know. That's a shame. Yeah. Folks, carbon credits, you can actually buy them surprisingly cheap. Yeah. And I'm guessing most of the people who listen to this are reasonably affluent, at least compared to, you know. Well, compared to the average inhabitant of the earth, I guarantee it. You are, to have discovered our podcast, you probably live in the Western world where you are hugely affluent. If you're one of my friends, you're hugely affluent compared to the most of the Western world. So... Think about giving the carbon credits. I do want to have a thing because it feels a little bit buying indulgences. And this is the other pushback. Oh, that, that was the other thought I had. Yes. Thank goodness. Because I don't want to wrap this topic up just yet because this feels like an important second half of it. So I have, I'm announcing this one on the podcast to, you know, signal how virtuous I am and how, what a good person I am and attractive and handsome and all of those kind of good things. But I'm actually a little bit hesitant to just brag about this because it does elicit a pretty poor reaction in some people. It's like, well, we should actually be cutting down on the pollution in the first place. You can't just emit carbon and then offset it and then think that everything's fine because where does that leave us? And like, I actually think mathematically that leaves us fine. Yeah. Uh, I had the exact same thought. I think we've had a little bit of a reference to it in the early days about like some people are so green that it feels like a religion and like when they're getting to the stage where they're anti-natalist where they don't believe more people should be born it feels like it's just going over the top and i could definitely see those people making those kind of arguments against you shouldn't be able to buy carbon offsets because you're not sufficiently bringing the world back to the stone age yeah, or, or just because it's too easy. Like, I honestly think that humans have an inherent need to feel guilty and bad about themselves at times. And I think that, you know, we should be sitting in a cold house without running our lights too much and eating beans and whatever. And that's the only way we can save the planet because saving the planet is a really, really important thing. So if we're not suffering, then we don't really care about it. And like, if I can just do it for a tiny percentage of my take-home income and forget about it, then like, I mustn't care about the environment enough because I'm not hurting. You have just given me 
a completely different perspective on Protestantism, which is phenomenal. Man, it's a big ship for a podcast. Like, so the whole Protestant movement came out of effectively whatever the decrees nailed on the church door, being like the Catholic Church is ripping you off. Indulgences are so evil. Yep. A whole lot of like the common discourse about the Protestant work ethic and that kind of thing is like Protestants kind of just want to have that guilt. They want to have that suffering. Yep. And that just ties together so well with that point against indulgences. Yep. You're not allowed to just pay money and then feel good about yourself. You have to feel bad about yourself. Everything's yeah. wrong and you have to feel guilty and physically suffer by using less energy. You have to hurt. That's the only way you can prove you care. Like, it's not a problem to be fixed. You have to prove you care by suffering is an yep. attitude that I see. Probably not in my friends. Like, I actually don't have... I've told some of my friends that I've done this, but I, I, don't, I do not feel good bragging about this. I don't feel like... I, I feel good that I feel honestly like I'm doing my bit to help combat my impact on climate change. And I do feel good about myself, which is the only reason to do this, really. Like, my actual impact is zero average across the world, unfortunately. But I feel good. I feel like I'm really actually making a difference. But I do not brag to really greedy people. I do not feel like I'll get a good reaction from them. Yeah. Well mentioned in the previous episode that Chris loves it when he sees me being like, oh, that's a great point, Chris. Yeah. I bet you he yep. thought that that kind of reaction might happen, but he didn't expect that it would be with that thought process in my head. So, no, I, I, like, particularly, I didn't expect you to bring up Protestantism. I don't know even sure that I thought this was a particularly good point, but it's a deeply gratifying to see you react to it this way. You never know what way your brain's going to go. Yep, so way, uh, go. which way it's going to hit you. So, but like, again, and to stress, I do think that I'm doing the right thing here. And I do think worries about the sustainability of like, they promise that these trends will stay planted for a hundred years and whatever. And that's hard to audit and anything over a hundred years time scale is difficult to guarantee. But if we take their assumptions at face value and they are sucking 20 tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere every year in exchange for my $365, I think I've done my bit. Like, I think I am no longer impacting climate change and I can feel good about that. That is why I do it. Yep. Like, I'm still going to ride my bike everywhere. I'm still going to drive a fuel-efficient car because, I don't know, for no other reason that I particularly like to. But <laughs> I actually think that I could drive a gas guzzler and still feel fine about myself. Yep. This is the Affix podcast. I agree. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> Finally, I've convinced you of something. Finally, I've talked you around to my way of thinking. Uh, I guess you could make the argument that you're not being sufficiently negative carbon. But, you know, whatever. Or you're not, like, driving the technology away from it if you're just subsidizing trees, blah, 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 blah. Or by setting an example of driving a gas guzzler is cool and everyone should do it because everyone wants to be just like Chris that I'm setting the wrong scene for the culture or whatever. Yeah, it's just so tenuous. It's kind of, it reminds me a lot of the arguments against geoengineering and that kind of thing. Like, geoengineering is definitely a last step, but feels like you want to be researching that last step before you actually have to do it. Before you need it, yeah. Not as you need it, or after you need it. <laughs> exactly. It's coffee bed time. It's coffee bed time. Right, so what are we going to bet on? Are we going to bet on climate change or are we going to bet on insurance states? <laughs> I feel like insurance is like a really quick one to resolve, right? It's just like, this is a fact. It's a quick one to resolve, right. No Googles, and I promise I have not Googled in the, in the meantime. I haven't either. Uh, but I want to say that the first insurance product was sold out of Lloyd's of London in the 1800s or the, maybe the 1700s. All right. Uh, I'll take the bet that it existed earlier than that. Insurance product existed earlier than that. And this might be one that needs a little bit of arbitration and a little bit of convincing back and forth. But uh, all right, that's our bet. We'll announce it during our live show next week. All right. Along with a little <laughs> bit of research. <laughs> that's a fast coffee bet section. That is a fast coffee bet section. What's the news from Diablo 2? Tell me. 
who got the world record. The world record for Amazon's reskinned in a modded version of the game that no one plays other than Mr. Lama. <laughs> there actually was a world record this very week. This very week. Unbelievable. You heard it here first, folks, because none of you are actually watching. Oh, it's been a drought of world records, like of proper world records. No, it you, was the, right. you have been telling me that. I actually need to look it up because I was too busy watching races. The race series is on and it is so great. Because it's more entertaining. It's true. It is. I would put that. I don't know. How do you feel in general about sports? You watched like racy sports. How do you feel about races versus time trials? Uh, races are more exciting, more exciting for sure. Like a hundred percent. That's why racing is so much more popular than time trials. Nice. Like I've been to the world time attack challenge live and it's pretty fun to watch the cars go fast around the track, but it's way more fun to watch people overtake each other. So it was the hell Softcore players one assassin in four hours and 30 minutes, four nice. hours and 30 minutes to finish the whole game. Like, oh wait, hell that's faster than the sorceress world record was back when I first got into this. So that's yeah, right. Okay. That is impressive. I'm more impressed now. But yeah, the race. Oh my God, just to get onto the race because I watched this last night. Tell me the race. So it was Players X, so the fastest way to play the game in general uh, without mods or hacks for the Amazon. And it was between Bender Meets Fry, the best top of the leaderboard speedrunner. The man. Indrek, who I've also referenced is like, he was once upon a time number one. Once the man. Once the man. Ryu Kezakotl, who was also once the man. Man, there's a lot of mans. In hardcore, at the very the least, ladies? in hardcore hell runs. I know, unfortunately, no ladies, no Elise yeah. Raptor or anything. Uh, we had 327X, who's currently got the fastest time in Players 1 Sorceress. And Teo, who is like the godfather of mm. all of Diablo speedruns. I think he was the first person to really put one up. He originally like started it with a segmented run and kind of went from there. At one point, he had 27 out of 28 of all the possible oh, like configurations. Wow, nearly a clean sweep. Oh, nearly so close. Nearly a clean sweep. And the race was just like so tight, so back and forth. But where it all came to in the end was Teo was in the lead. The old dog, he'd come back. He got to Diablo's Sanctum, the Chaos Sanctuary, mm. at the very last stage. And he died. No. He just died again and again and again and again. And after about half an hour, he quit. He just gave up. Oh, that's so soul crushing. <laughs> oh, it was brutal. Oh, man. And then Bender came through, caught up and won the race after having had similar things happen to him in normal. So like in the first hour and a half of the speed run, really? the same thing had happened to Bender where he like got to a point uh, one of the actual bosses that you'd like technically have to kill flew off screen. So uh -oh. he couldn't do it. He'd like cleared uh -oh. out everything except for this one boss. So he had to save and quit and start again. Oh, man. And yep, then like, awesome. he's like, I'm sorry, guys. I just have to walk away from the keyboard. I'm so angry right now. He walked <laughs> away for like 10 minutes and then came back and won the whole race. So, Wow. <laughs> yeah, good for him. Is this one of these races where you can choose all your equipment? No, this was not a, they call it a twinked run. This was... Classic, just start with the starting gear and okay. work your way through. Nice. So it was a fun one. That does It was sound worth fun. staying up until midnight. <laughs> you, and you watched the whole thing? I watched the whole thing. How long was it? Five and a half hours. Man. Were you doing anything else while you were watching it? Yeah, yeah. Glued to the screen. Other stuff. Okay. Good for you. That's well played. So that's it. That's the news from Diablo 2. All right. It is getting exciting in Diablo 2 land. You should, uh, you should get on it, listeners. Oh, uh, yeah. The last ladder reset will have started yesterday by the time this comes out so 
after that, the next ladder reset will be on D2 Remastered. Is it really? Is this what? That's what they've oh, said wow. on the Blizzard website. All right. You ready? Uh, you stopping? I'm ready. I'm out. That's a wrap. Well, I made a risotto yesterday and it said to put a splash of white wine in it. So I opened a whole bottle of white wine and I'm like, well, this is going to go off in two days. So I'm going to drink a whole bottle of white wine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just reminds me of uh, Arrested Development and we've got to drink the whole bottle of vodka, otherwise it'll go bad. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's true. <laughs>